Welcome to Inside the Draft, a weekly preview of the upcoming NFL Draft with insiders from around the country. Inside the Draft is back, our weekly look at the upcoming NFL Draft, which goes down at the end of April. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Taylor with Casey Vallier. We're inside the Indiana Union Construction Industry Radio Studio, and the Colts currently hold the fourth overall pick in the draft and speculation running wild on what the Colts will do, picking that high in the draft following a 4-12-1 season in 2022. To help us sort it all out today, we welcome in Luke Easterling is our guest, NFL draft analyst from the Draft Wire and USA Today. You can follow him and his work online on Twitter at Luke Easterling. Luke, thanks for the time today. Always good to have you back for another year talking draft. How you doing today? Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. I'm doing great. Um, obviously, my, my favorite time of year here, getting into uh, – uh, the real thick of it, right, with combine season and mm-hmm. Super Bowl's already done. So it's it's obviously my Christmas. I've been doing this for a long time and it still hasn't it still hasn't gotten old yet. So I think that's a good sign, right? No doubt about it. And you know, obviously, a lot of intrigue here with the Colts sitting there at number four and could be looking at a quarterback, Luke. So tell us how good this quarterback class is compared to last year and just how top heavy it is. I mean, definitely a lot, lot better than, than last year, especially at the top, right? Last year we saw, you know, one quarterback in the first round, and that was at 20, um, which means it could have been, you know, it could have very easily been no quarterbacks at all. And, and I think, you know, even just the, the little sample size we saw from them last year, um, the difference between what we saw from Kenny Pickett, who was the first quarterback off the board, and the difference between that and Brock Purdy, who was the last pick in the entire draft, um, just shows you what an interesting – class that was but this is this is a whole different ball game this year this year the the conversation is driven by four names at the top there's a couple of intriguing guys after that and then it's kind of you know maybe just wait and, and not draft anybody after that is going to be an interesting it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of that class goes but at, at the top you've got four legitimate probably top 10 guys um i i i would separate them into two tiers i think bryce young from alabama and, and cj stroud from ohio state are in their own tier okay uh, and i think the next two would be will levis from kentucky and anthony richardson from florida obviously i think those guys ton of potential ton of upside but you know more flaws more inconsistency more concern more of a boomer bust to their game than i think we have with with young and stroud who i think could be immediate day one starters and, and play at a high level. All right, so within that, as you said, you've got two tiers, right? Two two different guys in two different tiers. When you look at the first tier, if you will, right, Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, how much separation is there between those two guys in the same tier, if you will? Not a lot, not a lot. And and I think what it will come down to, what what it usually comes down to for, for, for every team is is, you know, certain traits, certain styles of play, how these guys fit into your scheme. And obviously that applies at every position, but quarterback even more so, right? Because it's such an important position. All of those things are just kind of heightened at that position and, and it has to be the right fit, right? And and that goes for, you know, the mental makeup as well in terms of the scheme, uh, personality, all of those things, those interviews behind the scenes that the teams have, all of that uh, uh, plays into the evaluation and how a team likes the quarterback to fit. But in terms of just in a vacuum, the way I have to do things, right? I have to look at it across the board i'm not a specific team so the things that that differentiate those two guys for me is that obviously there's the size issue right bryce young's listed at six foot 195 we know what the word listed means in this business also (laughs) uh, where you know it's it's usually i i just go back when i was playing in high school i remember i was a sophomore 
Um, just for reference, I'm like five <laughs> eleven, and like a shade over two hundred right now. I'm thirty eight years old. I'm, my sophomore year, the newspaper said I was six two and like one eighty five. Yeah, but yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. And I, I, t- I go back to, uh, I go back to uh, something that Jared Lorenzen said when he was at Kentucky. Oh boy. Um, somebody said, somebody said to him in an interview, he's like, "You're listed at two hundred eighty five pounds. What do you think about that?" It says that in the media guide. What do you think? He's like, I think that's a really nice media guide. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's kind of how I feel. It's like your driver's license, right? Yeah, my driver's license right, still exactly. says on like two, two, 210, I think. <laughs> exactly. So I, that's kind of how I, we, we feel about that word in, in this industry, right? When you see a guy is listed at a certain level, yeah. uh, certain numbers, and you, ca- you look at him and you're kind of like, eh, probably not, probably not, but uh, – that, that's kind of the concern with Bryce Young, right? If, if he's listed at six foot one ninety five, he's probably less than both of those numbers. Um, and since six foot one ninety five is already pretty small, not just in a height standpoint, but but it's the bulk, right? If you're going to get knocked around as an NFL quarterback, you gotta you gotta be able to hang in the pocket. You gotta be able to take that beating at times. And and he's he's a small guy, he, you know. It just it is what it is. So that's obviously the biggest and really the only concern with Bryce Young. And I think that's it. The fact that a guy his size is still in the conversation to go number one overall, go back five, ten years and tell me that, that a guy that big would be good enough to still be in the conversation to go number one overall despite that. It just it hasn't been the case for most of the, the, the league's existence, and, and that just speaks to how good he is at everything else, all the important stuff, right? Size isn't really a skill. You are, you, you are what you are. He can do so many things, really everything you need a franchise quarterback to do at such a high level that we're still talking about him going number one overall because, despite the size is what I mean. And, and so obviously with C.J. Stroud, you don't have those concerns. He's got the prototypical size and frame, 6'4", six, 6'3", six, um, you know, the, the weight, everything you'd look for. He, he looks the part of the franchise quarterback, right? The difference comes in the play that we've seen over the last two years. I think C.J. Stroud picked the best possible time to have the best game of his life. Mm -hmm, When he went in and played Georgia in the college football place, honestly reminiscent of what what Justin Fields did against Clemson in the the semifinal as well a few years back, right? Went in against a dominant defense, one of the best, if not the best in the country, and lit them up. And didn't just light them up. He did it without Marvin Harrison Jr. for a lot of that game after the first quarter. He did it in ways that we were waiting to see him do it, right? It, it, the, the book on Stroud up to that point was in the pocket when things go well, he is surgical, right? He will pick you apart all day long. When things get muddy, when things get messy, and he's got to break out of the pocket and he's got to make things happen, it's not as consistent, right? That was what we, what we saw from him up to that game. The Georgia game, we saw it all. He was making plays outside the pocket. He was creating on his own, making big throws on the run. And, and no matter what happened against the best defense in the country on the biggest stage, he made enough plays to make to, to put them in position to win that game and really should have won that game, right? Mm-hmm. So big plays in the clutch, using his legs and athleticism. I mean, everything we every question we had about C.J. Stroud, he answered at the best possible time, right? So the, the only difference I would say in terms of their on-field play, if we take the size thing out of it, is that while it was great to see C.J. Stroud answer those questions against Georgia – Bryce Young played that way for two years straight. Uh-huh. So he was the he was that type of performer every week for a longer period of time versus just seeing it 
that one time. And yes, it was a big moment. And yes, it was very important for Stroud. So that's, that's what I think would still separate Bryce Young from me is that on big stages against small teams, big teams, no matter who they were playing. And honestly, they lost a lot of talent, particularly at wide receiver this past season. And he had a lot more on his shoulders. Bryce Young did. And and the output was basically the same. So, you know, go back and look at the clutch comebacks against Auburn two years ago, the Texas game this past year. He's a guy who can who can put his team on his shoulders and make it happen week in and week out. That's what gives him the edge still to me is that we saw that consistent body of work on a weekly basis for two full seasons. Stroud did it really once in the big moment, in the big stage. So that still leaves a little bit of a question mark as to whether he can be that guy consistently on a weekly basis. Now, that second tier you talk about with Will Levis and Anthony Richardson, they both kind of have, you know, the, these high ceilings, potentially of the low floor. When you look at those two guys, what is the biggest thing that's holding them back? Is it just the people, they get the weapons around them? Is that at all what affects Richardson and Levis and their inconsistencies? I think that's part of it. I think the big thing, and, and, and for me, Richardson would be ahead of Levis right now, and I don't know how popular that is or not. Um, but, but for me, it was going into this season, we had a little bit more of a sample size with Levis, right? And Richardson hadn't been the full-time starter until this past season, which is its own kind of concern, right? I know a lot of teams want to see more than a year's worth of starts from a quarterback, especially if they're going to use a top-10 pick on him. Right. Um, and, and the way Richardson started this season was rough. I mean, I, I went to USF, so I was happy to see him play poorly in the USF game, and the Bulls almost won that game in the Swamp. That was pretty fun. But in terms of evaluating him, he had a really rough start to the year, right? More turnovers and touchdown passes um, for a lot of that season. But I think, I think a lot of people wrote him off after the first few weeks of the season and really didn't pay close enough attention to the progression that he made, particularly as a passer, throughout the rest of the year because he got a lot better in terms of his processing, his pocket maneuverability. You could, you could argue that he's got some of the best pocket presence in this entire class, still as, as raw as he is. But you see the arm talent. You see the athleticism, the speed. I, I, there's so much there to work with that if you go back and look at some of the riskier quarterbacks that have panned out in recent years, obviously Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes come to mind, and that's too lofty of a comparison to make. Right. But if you were to go back and say that about those guys back then, it would have seemed just as silly, right? No, but you know that, it was, that was the, the book on both of those guys too. High risk, high reward, big physical tools, lots of potential, but a lot of bust potential because the inconsistency was there. So Richardson, I think, better athlete, more speed, the arm strength is probably, you know, the same in the same atmosphere as, as Levis. And I feel like he got better as the season progressed. I feel like Levis coming into the season had a lot of those questions from last year, consistency, decision-making, accuracy. We knew he had a big arm. We knew he was a good athlete. We knew he was a tough, competitive leader. But we wanted to see the consistency with the turnovers, with the, again, the decision-making, the accuracy. And I just don't think he got better. I don't think the film showed a guy who made the kind of progression that we saw from Richardson, particularly down the second half of the season. So I think that in general, the lack of polish, the lack of consistency, the lack of reliability, that's what separates the two tiers. And then within that second tier, I feel like Richardson has more athleticism and more upside and showed more improvement and progression down the stretch last year that would give him the nod to me, make me more excited and more kind of confident in his ability to continue that progression at the next level as opposed to Levis. 
Now, Luke, one of the guys that's kind of on the outside of those tiers is Hendon Hooker. Looked to be a guy who was probably going to be in that Heisman conversation, but then had that ACL, and it definitely took a stop, took a, a dip in his draft stock as well. Where do you see a guy like Hendon Hooker, you know, ending up in this draft? Yeah, he's the big wild card, right? I, I talked about there's only a couple more guys that I I might think are even draftable. Um, uh, Tanner McKee from Stanford is the other guy, but Hendon Hooker is going to be the the very interesting study for the entire league right how do you value a player that had when he was healthy had such an incredible season and go back and watch the Alabama game obviously the big you know upset win and and what a what a huge win that was at that point in the season the way he played I mean the athleticism the arm talent throws maybe the best deep ball in this entire class just a beautiful deep ball thrower um but the two biggest concerns you're going to have is you have a late-season ACL. It's not like it happened in September. Right. So you have a concern about how healthy he's going to be to start his first NFL training camp. And I think exacerbating that concern is the fact that he's going to be a 25-year-old rookie. So in terms of development, in terms of investing in a rookie, you know, if you're talking about a first-round pick, it's a very different conversation as if you're talking about a third-round pick, right? If you, if he, because of the injury, because of the age and the fact that, I mean, you might not get him fully healthy through an offseason until he's 26 years old. And so it, it just depends on what type of team you are, what kind of investment you're willing to make, how patient can you be, and obviously how healthy he can get before, you know, he's able to be the player we saw for the first two-thirds of that season. I mean, that guy can be a franchise quarterback. It's just you've got to be comfortable with the age and you've got to be comfortable with the medicals to the point where you could invest an early-round pick. Again, quarterbacks are just too important. So would it surprise me at all to see somebody particularly trade into the bottom half of the first round because they think he's just too good? And regardless of whenever he gets healthy, they'd rather have him healthy at 26 on a rookie contract with a fifth-year option mm-hmm. to take advantage of those ta- of that talent and take their chances. That wouldn't surprise me at all. It's too important of a position. Would it surprise me if all of those teams say, you know what, we just we can't do it, we're not comfortable with the knee, we're not comfortable with, with spending a first-round pick on a guy at that age who's going to be coming off a knee injury and, and wait until the third round, maybe even the fourth, to take a chance on a guy like that? Wouldn't surprise me either. I love the upside. I'm obviously rooting for him. You always want to see a guy bounce back from that, especially as, as electrifying of a playmaker as he was for the first two-thirds of that season. You're obviously rooting for him, but – He's going to be the wild card in this group. Those four, those top four guys are probably all going in the top ten, definitely all in the first round. They're like Hooker's probably going to be the next guy off the board, and it could be a long wait to see that next quarterback. That's good stuff. Luke Easterling is the NFL draft analyst for, from the Draft Wire and USA Today. Follow him on Twitter at Luke Easterling. Luke, doubling back to the Colts, and I know you don't, you you obviously don't cover the Colts, and you got to cover the draft from a. Uh, a big, broad, uh, you know, standpoint. If you can focus on the Colts for just a second, how much urgency would you have if you're the Colts to move up to number one and grab the quarterback that you deem the best fit in the draft? Considering they're already at number four, just the idea of going up to number one to get the guy that they deem is the best quarterback in the draft, so that no one else, including the Houston Texans at two, don't have that guy. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of dynamics here that are very unique, right? You've got the fact that obviously you need a franchise quarterback. You're going to have to, you know, probably jump ahead of, of, of not just any team, but a team in your division, right? So, so obviously, you know, when it comes to quarterback, it's just too important. If you identify a guy, and I say this all the time about quarterbacks that go in the second round, if a quarterback has a second-round grade, 
you're going to have to take him in the first round. It's just too important. Okay. Like that's just the way the, the, the league goes. So when you talk about being in the top five, if a quarterback should go number four, if you're that, if you're that committed, if you're that sure that he can be a franchise guy that you'd spend the top five pick on, it's too important to not just go get him at mm-hmm. number one. Yeah. Okay. Whatever that will cost. And, and again, these guys in, in, in a vacuum, again, the way I do this work is a very macro. How would this apply as closely as possible to any general team and in that respect obviously Bryce Young and CJ Stroud are very similar you know Chris Ballard may have a completely different idea of what exactly he wants the the Indianapolis Colts quarterback to be and that might be Bryce Young that might be CJ Stroud but whoever it is you can't let your division rival get that guy instead if you're that sure that he can be the guy right so that's what I think will ultimately propel the, 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 the Colts to be very uh, aggressive in trying to move up if they're convinced one of those guys is that much better or that much more of a fit. It could very easily be that they're very comfortable with both of those guys. I don't think that happens very often. I think usually usually these decision makers get in a room with a guy and and really like one guy, um, particularly a quarterback. It just it, it matters that much. So I think at the end of the day, it's, it's more likely that they would move up again. It, you don't want to face that guy two times a year if you're convinced he can be a, a game-changing quarterback. You, you just don't want that. So that's what I think will ultimately get the deal done. And you obviously have a very motivated seller in the Chicago Bears, right? Uh, you know, they end up at number one. They don't need a quarterback. I'm sure they'll pretend that they might take one to try to drive the price up. I don't <laughs> think anybody should buy that. Right. Um, but, you know – there's leverage on both sides, right? The, the Bears will be able to leverage the fact that Houston is at two and say, hey, if you don't want, if you don't want your guy going to your division rival, you can right. come up here and get him. Um, and and the, the frustration kind of for, for the Colts is that that trade is probably going to involve next year's first-round pick, probably going to involve the 35th overall pick, that second-round pick. And there's a lot of things, a lot of other things the Colts need, particularly in the second round there, um, that would that – would, you know, that'd be a great spot for a left tackle. Be a great spot for a, a pass rusher or a corner. Some other things that they need. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, it's a quarterback league, man. You, if you if you don't have one, you better get one. Uh, and I think the Colts are in a great spot because let, let's play it out the other way, right? Let's play it out the other way. You sit, you think, you know what? There's two of these quarterbacks we like. We'll call the Bears bluff that they won't take one, and they don't. And then you get to Houston, and they get to take their pick. Arizona's at three. They're obviously not going to take one. But the problem with doing that is that you have Vegas at at uh, at seven. You've got Carolina at nine. You've even got Detroit at six. They probably won't take a quarterback, but you can't be so sure that some other team that needs a quarterback that's close enough to make a jump isn't going to get enamored with whoever the other guy is to jump up with Arizona. You think Arizona would mind coming down from for number three with all the needs that they have and getting a haul to go back to seven or nine with Vegas and Carolina, and now all of a sudden you sat at four thinking you're going to get the second-best guy that you're okay with and now somebody's jumped you and you're left with, you know, Levis and Richardson at four if that's what you want to do. So right, it's just, right. again, if you identify a franchise quarterback that you think can be the guy for you, it's not, it's just not worth the risk. It's worth whatever it will cost to go up and get him. Go ask a lot of the teams that have made the move to be confident in their guy. Again, the Bills traded up for Josh Allen. The, the, the Chiefs traded up for Patrick Mahomes. It doesn't always work out. But you have to believe in it. If you believe in that guy, you have to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and invest what it takes to go get that guy. If you play it safe, if you risk losing that guy because you think the board will fall a certain way, 
um, it can it can come back to bite you really really bad. And again, the fact that it's Houston of all teams, a team in your division who also needs a quarterback at two, I say if you fall in love with a guy, you got to call up Chicago, give them what they want, and, and go make it happen. Now, one of the things you, you mentioned there with getting a quarterback, how important it is, but it's also important to surround him with weapons. And over the last handful of years, it seems like you can find you know the the top six wide receivers turn out to be potentially Pro Bowl guys as rookies. Where is this wide receiver depth in, in this upcoming draft? I haven't heard as much nearly like you had the last handful of years, but it seems like it's still a pretty deep one. And you look at this Colts roster, you're not sure where those draft picks are going to see, but you've got Michael Pittman, Alec Pierce, Paris Campbell had a decent year, but he's a free agent. So they definitely need to add some weapons around a potential franchise quarterback. How deep is this receiver group? I like the depth overall. Uh, I think that I, I don't think there's a top tier if that makes sense. There's no, you know, Jamar Chase. There's no, you know, elite number one. This is definitely the best receiver in this class who should be a top five, top ten pick. There's nobody like that. But that that next tier, if there's no top tier and the second tier, probably has, you know, four or five guys that if any of them were the first one off the board, it would be, it would be okay with me. It would make sense, right? For me, Quentin Johnston from TCU is still the guy at the top of that list just because I, I love his potential. I don't think he's quite – a finished product yet he's not not the most polished guy in the world but when you're 6'4 215 and you can run like that and jump like that and your arms are that long I'll take my chances right I'll I'll get that in the building and, and trust my coaching staff to get the most out of those traits because it's just so rare to have a guy at that size who can do what he can do um, but this is this is a weird draft in that the, the the bulk of the of the best receivers in this class are really small they're really small guys uh, Josh Downs from North Carolina Jay Flowers from Boston College is really small. Tank Dell from uh, Houston. And first of all, anybody who's like 5'8 and 165 pounds who calls themselves Tank is amazing. Let's I go. have that guy on my team. Draft him on principle. Um, yeah, exactly. Just, just get that guy in the building. If he walks in and his name is Tank, that's not, give me that guy. But, but um, Marvin Mims Jr. from Oklahoma. There's so many of these smaller but explosive big play, deep ball, after the catch type of guys that I think it's going to be a really interesting class. We've We've got this, we've come to this like understanding that in order to be a quote unquote true number one wide receiver, you have to be a certain size. You have to be big enough. And I feel like the way offenses have moved in the NFL lately, I feel like that's been disproven, right? You have to have a playmaker. You have to have a guy. Tyreek Hill is not a big guy, but he's ridiculously fast, so it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and he's a great route runner, a great hand. So it, it, you don't have to be 6'2 plus and be a big physical guy who can quote-unquote do it all in order to be the number one receiver in your offense. You just have to have an offense that puts you in position to use your particular skill set in a way that makes you that valuable to the offense, if that makes sense. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting class with the wide receivers to see where they land, mm -hmm. what those offenses want to do with them. Because, again, it's just one of the things. Even Jordan Addison, the, uh, the, the Litnikoff winner from two years ago who transferred from Pitt to USC, he's not a big guy. Um, he's not a physical, you know, presence at that at that spot, but he's an incredible route runner. He's great after the catch, the short, short area quickness, the explosiveness, to be able to stop and start. Um, he's he's a playmaker, even though he's not a bigger guy. So can he be a number one receiver in offense? Absolutely. So the order in which those guys come off the board is going to be really interesting. Not to say there aren't some bigger guys uh, that'll find their way in there. Cedric Tillman from Tennessee. Um, but Jalen Hyatt is another guy who's smaller. You know, it's just it's a very interesting class. Doesn't look like we're used to seeing 
Um, but there's a lot of explosiveness, a lot of big playability yeah. in this class, and I'm interested to see where these guys land and how that's taken advantage of at the next level. Indeed. That's Luke Easterling. Final one, Luke. You've been so gracious with your time. Who is the best non-quarterback in this draft class, and how far back can the Bears afford to trade back and still be in range to get that guy? So this is why I think the, the marriage with the Colts is, is perfect for the Bears, right? Because four is probably as far back as you want to go. And honestly, it's even a little bit risky on its own because if you're telling me that D'Amico Ryans, who played linebacker at Alabama, won't be tempted to, to put his foot down for Will Anderson at no number doubt. two, yep. uh, if he's on the board, uh, I don't agree with you. I think that he's going to have a very strong opinion about doing that and obviously it comes down to how they feel about the quarterbacks and you got to have one of those but if I mean I don't know how they feel about Davis Mills if they feel like they can get somebody in free agency that will free them up to take Will Anderson if he's there Mm -hmm. Um, but Will Anderson and Jalen Carter are those two guys right if you're Chicago if say you stay at number one it's going to be one of those guys that's the conversation right so you feel like Houston at two is risky because you know if if Ryan's wants his guy he's going to maybe he gets his guy um, if Arizona at three will take whoever the defensive player is that, that is still there, right? So if they're both there, they get to pick between Will Anderson and Jalen Carter. Whoever they don't take, Chicago would be hoping to get at four if they trade down. But that's the risk, right? You trade with, with Indy at four. Indy goes up and gets their quarterback. Anderson goes two. Carter goes three. Now you're sitting at four with some extra picks but nobody who feels worthy of that spot, especially at a position of need. So that's the risk for Chicago Mm -hmm. and why at the end of the day, if they don't want to make a deal, that might might have a lot to do with it. And again, a lot of that depends on the intelligence they'll gather. If they're any any kind of worried that they move down to four and they miss out on both Anderson and Carter, I feel like they stay at one unless they get blown away by an offer from Indy because even that might be too far. Anderson is worthy of the number one pick. Carter is worthy of the number one pick. They, they, they need both of them, right? I know they have $100 million in cap space to spend, so the needs they have today aren't going to be the needs they have necessarily on draft day. Um, but that's the risk, right? Even trading down to number four, I feel like if they were willing to do that, they might be willing to just go ahead and trade down to seven with Vegas or nine to Carolina. If Carolina wants to come all the way up there so they can get more picks and just load up that way and, and yeah. give up already on, on losing out on the top guy because even going down to four is a little bit risky. We'll see how it all shapes out. A lot to happen between now and then, the Combine next week. That's our first installment of Inside the Draft with Luke Easterling, NFL Draft Analyst from the Draft Wire and USA Today. Great follow on Twitter, at Luke Easterling, for all of his content. Luke, can't thank you enough, man. Really appreciate the time and the insight, and uh, maybe keep your phone on between now and uh, the draft end of April. We enjoyed it so much, so let's do it again soon if you don't mind. Hey, it's my pleasure. I, I have to keep my phone charged. Because it's, uh, <laughs> Same. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it goes. But, no, it's my pleasure. Always have a great time with you guys, and, uh, and call me up anytime. We'll talk. All right, man. Thanks so much, Luke. Have a great spring. You too, guys. Take care.